0: This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: Hello and welcome to the US-China trade war update with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the political economy desk here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. We took a week off last week and came back to find out that they'd only gone and signed the world's biggest trade deal, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or CEP, or CEP, Follow what you want, but it's made headlines all over the world, which is kind of weird for me as one of the few to have been following the dozens of rounds of negotiations to have written at least three times over the past six years or so that its signing was imminent, but there we go. China's first big multilateral trade deal, yes, it's a fairly shallow agreement by modern standards. No, it's not as high calibre as the rival deal the CPTPP, but it has big symbolism for China. Joe Shin and John Carter will be here as ever to frisk the details, engage the reaction in China and further afield. And I'm also very happy to welcome to the show for the first time our fantastic senior Asia correspondent, Bava Bavan Jai Pragas. Bavan has been another one of those who have been following this deal for years and he's going to explain to us the reaction in ASEAN and around Asia as well as some detail on how getting this thing ratified may not be a walk in the park. Don't forget, China has fallen out with a number of the members, most recently Australia. You've also got Japan, Korea, Malaysia and so on in there. It's not going to be simple. Plus, in some very special bonus content, I splurged 400 Hong Kong dollars on the new Barack Obama book so that you don't have to. What does he say about China? What does he say about trade wars? I've already been through the index, so you're going to find out soon. See you on the other side. We're back in the studio this Friday. Joshin, John Carter. Great to be back at HQ, And just to add to the alphabet soup of the day, the big news this week has been the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership being signed last weekend. That's RCEP or RCEP to the uninitiated. It's the biggest free trade deal in the world in terms of the geography, geography and the GDP covered. One third of global GDP, one third of the world's population is part of this, including China. Um, John, this was obviously breaking news last week. It wasn't really that much of a surprise. It had been well telegraphed, but have you been taken aback uh, maybe a bit by the international reaction to this deal especially in the US not taken back
2: but I think it serves as a wake up call to the United States that if it wants to participate in world trade on an equal footing that it needs to get involved I mean that's, this is uh, 15 nations, uh, RCEP is 15 nations as you say a third of the population of the world, a third of the world's GDP all saying let's, let's lower tariffs, let's increase our trade and the US is not part of that and I think that that is a uh, major um, win for China and a major loss for the United States.
1: Yeah, the timing, I suppose, coming just on the heels of Trump's election loss, as people are speculating as to whether Joe Biden will bring the United States back to the multilateral table and into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, of course, was negotiated by the U.S. um, alongside or sep suppose the timing helps sharpen that focus John in terms of of,
2: of course it does yeah and it it, it uh, strengthens the argument for uh, the US trying to get back in the TPP it's that's not very simple anymore because the TPP has moved on um, it's been changed the uh, codicils have been changed uh, 27 different differences between the original TPP and the CPTPP which is the current 11 nation agreement now um, but uh, I think one can expect the Biden administration to eat, at least try to pursue uh, getting back in because it, um, it it's clear, at least to me, that the confrontational trade war approach of Donald Trump hasn't solved the problem.
1: Mm. Joe Xin, um, RCEP, obviously China's first major multilateral deal outside of the WTO. Uh, What's been the response uh, that you've picked up on from contacts and just generally the sense of how this has been received in China?
3: Uh, Well, um, as John said, you know, it is perceived as a big wing, a triumphant for Beijing, and China has been using the RCEP, uh, to say, you know, China's uh, stance of uh, multilateralism, of uh, against the trade war, you know, has won support in this region while the U.S., you know, is uh, left out at the table. So, uh, well, the real economic meanings, there are not much analysis into it because the details haven't really been pop- uh, translated and published by the Chinese government. Um, but the significant uh, significance of this deal, ASEP is in terms of strategic and mm-hmm. narrative. Uh, you know, Fimbai, this is the first time that uh, have a Asia Pacific regional uh, trade deal that the U.S. is not uh, part of it. It's hard to say that China is leading it. China certainly is not uh, the most important uh, uh, player in this uh, in this uh, in this deal. But the, the important thing is that you know there's uh, no uh, U.S. in it, mm. so uh, China can potentially uh, fill the void. Uh, left by uh, U.S. in terms of this uh, leadership, regional trade leadership. Yeah. So this is very important. And also, it's, it, it fits into Beijing's strat, uh, strategy or Beijing's vision of the future world. You know, uh, as I said before, if the coronavirus is going to uh, fragment the world trade system into three blocks, the U.S.-led one, the European one, and uh, Asia one, China is really uh, hoping that it can, be uh, deeply embedded in the Asia one, mm-hmm. uh, which can be developed based upon ASEP.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think the important thing from my own uh, conversations over the course of the week, Joachim, is that the symbolism is greater than the economic benefit. I mean, it's it's not like in terms of trade deals, it's quite low quality. It's mostly tariff reduction, as you would expect whenever you've got countries like Laos and Myanmar. They're not going to go for something totally comprehensive. But the symbolism has been strong and I do think it's partially the timing. Um, we're going to hear a couple of um, extracts from a book now. And just to, to lead into this, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was obviously the cornerstone of the pivot to Asia by the Barack Obama government. We'll hear a few extracts from his new book, which came out this week. I will have a little bit of a listen now, a few extracts not read by the man himself, but read by our colleague Sarah Jung on our China desk.
0: Still, The fact remained that China's gaming of the international trading system had too often come at America's expense. Automation and advanced robotics may have been the bigger culprit in the decline of U.S. manufacturing jobs, but Chinese practices, with the help of corporate outsourcing, had accelerated those losses. The flood of Chinese goods into the United States had made flat-screen TVs cheaper and helped keep inflation low, but only at the price of depressing the wages of U.S. workers— I'd promised to fight on those workers' behalf for a better deal on trade, and I intended to keep that promise. With the world's economy hanging by a thread, though, I had to consider when and how best to do that. China held more than $700 billion in US debt and had massive foreign currency reserves, making it a necessary partner in managing the financial crisis. To pull ourselves and the rest of the world out of the recession, we needed China's economy growing, not contracting. China wasn't going to change its trading practices without firm pressure from my administration. I just had to make sure we didn't start a trade war that tipped the world into a depression and harmed the very workers I'd vowed to help.
1: So the Im- implication here, guys, is that um, Barack Obama w- wouldn't have minded pursuing a more strident trade policy on China, but couldn't because the global economy was hang- hanging by a thread and he needed China's buy-in to, to help bail it out. So... Yeah. Zhou Xin, you were um, working as a reporter in Beijing at the time. Tell us about your recollections of the f- covering the financial crisis and China's role in it. Well, first of all, I think the financial
3: crisis in uh, 2008 is really a kind of uh, you know, historic watershed for China's uh, perception of the world. Uh, be- because before that, China was always thinking, you know, uh, uh, this word or this word economy is dominated by you know the, the developed economies and uh, China was playing on the secondary role. Or, you know, just a small chair at the table. But after this uh, financial crisis, China, there's a a joke or kind of saying in China, right? Only socialism can can save world capitalism. Mm. That's because China has launched its stimulus. And, you know, um, uh, when when, uh, the United States is doing its uh, uh, QE, China has to use its foreign exchange reserves to continue to buy U.S. treasuries. And you know when the uh, European countries were in trouble, you know, these uh, these even Greek, um, um, you know, officials coming to Beijing to begging, basically Beijing to bail them out, and help, hunt, them, yes, yeah. to hand out cash, and this kind of thing really uh, show up Beijing's confidence of uh, its joining the world, and also more importantly, show up Beijing's confidence about its economic growth model. As Wang Qishan famously pointed out, you know, for a long, long time we have been treating the teacher, and now it seems the student had out. Uh, Clevered uh, the teacher. So Mm -hmm. this is a. I think this is still the perception in Beijing today that um, uh, China's uh, uh, development model not only is suitable for China, but also has its value for the rest of the world. Mm,
1: And it's reinforced. What we've seen over the last recent years, where China has become more forceful, um, it's not really taking a back seat anymore. And you, do you think you can trace that all back to to this episode? Yes, because Mm
3: -hmm. uh, one. uh, Assumption or uh, perception from the financial crisis for China is that uh, the uh, the global capitalism system, the US-led global capitalism system is in relative decline and mm-hmm. the economic gravity and uh, the financial power is shifting to the east, to China, to Asia, to developing countries. That's why China is spending so much efforts, you know, uh, building up this uh, bricks, you know, no one Mm. Uh, you know, not many people have high expectations for this, but China is still committed to this kind of group, to this kind of idea. And China was doing this Belt and Road. Mm. uh, And and China is uh, becoming more committed to regional uh, economic integration. Yes, RCEP. uh, That's all because of this global financial crisis Mm -hmm. has changed the perception in Beijing. Mm.
1: John, you you guys were, were both up in Beijing at the time. Yeah, any recollection of Obama's visit, and, but of, the, of that time in general? Is, is that strong no, memory?
2: No, no, no strong memory at all. Um, the, the focus was entirely on the, uh, uh, it, for us, in the reporting we were doing, was on the uh, huge stimulus that China Enacted in November of two thousand and eight, uh, four trillion yuan, five hundred eighty-six million U.S. dollars, which at the time was a huge amount. Um, now we see multi-trillion-dollar rescue yeah. plans from the Biden United States trying to get two point four uh, trillion passed. Exactly. So it's it's um, it's the the perception of amounts has changed, but at the time that was a huge amount, and it um, it just um, it just uh, it was. Um, high-octane high gasoline for the engine of Chinese economy, and it worked. It, it, got, it got the economy really moving, and it helped pull the, uh, the global economy out of the mire. Mm-hmm. And so, by the end of 2009, it took a year, but at the, by the end of 2009, things were getting much better.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're going to hear another passage from Barack
1: Obama's book, as read by Sarah, bringing it up to perhaps something which we can relate to, given our coverage of the trade talks over the past couple of years.
0: I told Wen Jiabao that given the massive trade imbalances between our two countries, the United States could no longer overlook China's currency manipulation and other unfair practices. Either China started changing course, or we'd have to take retaliatory measures. Hearing this, Wen tried a different tack, suggesting that i just give him a list of US products we wanted China to buy more of, and he'd see what he could do. He was especially keen on including military and high-tech items that America barred from export to China for national security reasons. I explained that we needed a structural solution, not piecemeal concessions. And in the back and forth between us, I felt like I was haggling over the price of chickens at a market stall, rather than negotiating trade policy between the world's two largest economies. I was reminded once again that for Wen and the rest of China's leaders, foreign policy remained purely transactional. How much they gave and how much they got would depend not on abstract principles of international law, but on their assessment of the other side's power and leverage. Where they met no resistance, they'd keep on taking.
1: Jo Xin, you were a reporter on point for much of the trade talks coverage over 2018-2019 uh, here where it seems as though there was a similar situation with um, China wishing to offer to buy a lot of purchases of American goods, and but in, and Trump seemed quite willing to take them, unlike Obama. Is that s- sort of the parallel you would draw there? Uh, well, I think
3: first of all, the assumption could be a problematic uh, thing, but because for Beijing, it's never like, okay, we are going to make compromises to the United States. It's always up to Beijing's own decision. Like, yes, if US wants us to buy more um, grains, and China needs these soybeans, yes, China will happily say, okay, yes, we'll do sure. that. And imagine if uh, you know if Facebook wants a presence in uh, in China, and China thinks it could be a potential threat for national security. And no matter what Mark Zuckerberg did, you know, no matter what he, mm. no matter how hard he tried, he can learn the Mandarin, he can run in front of Tiananmen during the uh, smog, <laughs> he can uh, he can put uh, <laughs> Xi Jinping's book on his uh, desk. You know that wouldn't help. It just, it's just just nowhere. way. Yeah. So you can you can you can see this also from the. Uh, from the uh, Obama days, I think that's already uh, very clear. In China, when every time the, the the U.S. trying to like, oh, let's you have this problem, you have that problem, and in China said, okay, let's have a talk. And there's, there's grand ceremonies, endless banquets, you know, talks, one talk after another. Mm. And look at you know, ten years later, what has changed? You know, nothing. It's still China still has this trade, huge trade surplus with uh, mm-hmm. with the United States, and you know, can you really say China has uh, uh, adjusted its economic
1: growth model that in favor of uh, uh, U.S. preferences? I don't think so. Absolutely not. Yeah. John, uh, you were obviously editing a lot of these stories. And do you see this um, era, which Obama has described in his book, as being
2: sort of pivotal in, in China's rise on the global stage as well? Yeah, absolutely. And going back and looking at 2008, before the final financial crisis, which started in September... Or came to a a head in September, Uh, 2008. In the summer was the Beijing Olympics, which was a huge success. It really was impressive, and I think it 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 gave the world a different impression of China than it had before. Uh, And before that was the Sichuan earthquake, uh, which was devastating. Um, But that is when Facebook got banned because um, protesters in the earthquake and volunteers of the youth for the earthquake were using it to communicate with one another. The government wanted to say, okay, calm down here. You're spreading rumors. You're making things worse. We need to control this. And that's when Facebook got banned uh, and has been banned ever since. Mm -hmm. So it was a pivotal year for China. Clearly between the Beijing Olympics and the rescue uh, after the financial crisis, uh, China jumped to the center of the world stage.
1: Do you, I mean, the parallels between um, Obama saying he felt like he was haggling over chicken with Wen Jiabao and the trade talks of 2018, 2019, would you agree with Joe Shin's assessment that really in the last 10, 12 years, there's really not been much of a shift in, in the West's favour in how China's economy works? So, I mean, what what more can can countries do to try and,
2: if they really want China to change, what can they do about it? Well, um I think that they need to apply pressure um, and united pressure. Um, This is the big question with the Biden presidency. Will he be able to create a broad spectrum of countries, Europe, the European Union, uh, Japan, Korea and others to say, look, we need to abide by these rules. You need to create a broad level playing field for foreign countries doing business in China. You need to stop giving state-owned enterprises such preferential treatment, subsidies, and other advantages so that foreign businesses can compete fairly. And this is a, the, the perception. Mm. Um, a key, uh, uh, milepost will be whether China and the European Union can come to an investment treaty. Mm-hmm. Because those two issues, level playing field state subsidies, are at the heart of of those negotiations. Those negotiations have been going on for eight years mm-hmm. and no resolution. And the Europeans, uh, as we've described before, are, are suffering from promise fatigue. They want They want a result. They want the result this year. And if they don't get it, they may start to restrict uh, Chinese investment in Europe. And that may create a wave supported by Biden Mm -hmm. um, to create a united front. What the united front can do uh, remains to be seen, but perhaps- Mm -hmm. Just putting pressure on China will be enough. We'll see.
1: Yeah, and just really quickly before we finish up, Joe Shen, I wanted to ask you about this because in the podcast previously you've said that this sort of coalition of allies is a a fear of Beijing's. And I wonder what do you think within that Beijing would have to fear? Like what specific policies or what specific tools would this so-called coalition have, have that would make China afraid? Uh, well, I think, uh, really, uh, Beijing has nothing to
3: worry uh, too much about because, uh, as as one uh, princeling uh, said, you know, they uh, are anal- analyzing what U.S. really want. If U.S. want some economic interest, want take some money from China, I think China can uh, negotiate the price. But if the United States is seeking uh, regime change as some hawks in the Washington mm. has advocated, then China really has you know, nothing to, to fear to, because that's a, that's a worst scenario. Mm. You just uh, get prepared for what will come. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think these kind of pressures will um, really uh, work if it touches uh, lines China sees as, uh, as, you know, as a lifeline. For instance, uh, um, the state-owned enterprises. You know, both uh, Brussels and Washington saying this is unfair economic practices, but China has made it very clear that this is a fundamentalism, uh, you know, fundamental economic foundation of our whole socialist system. So we will never make a compromise on this. Um but if you want more business you know we can open a new um, free trade zone in Shanghai possibly <laughs> you can set up a, a few shops there <laughs> Hainan uh, Yeah Hainan
2: <laughs> Yeah and the size of the Chinese market is is simply can't be ignored I mean yeah. the the middle class in China is already bigger than the population of the entire United States yeah. and is growing rapidly and will be For a well, while. <laughs> theoretically well <laughs> theoretically will double in size over yeah. the next 10 20 years and yeah. that is that's just too big to ignore.
1: Yeah, we've seen the American Chamber of Commerce survey just come out today from Shanghai, saying that vast majority of them want. But they're happy Biden got elected because they think he's going to calm things down. Um, might mean quieter lives for us three. Uh, maybe we can get, get more sleep over the next couple of years, guys. But we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see. But It'll for be now, that's the, been
2: best laid plans. Best all laid that. plans, <laughs>
1: exactly. But thanks very much for for coming on again today, and we'll see you all again next week. Okay, thank, thank you. you. We're talking Asia's trade deal again. We're with Bhavan Jai Pragas, who is the senior Asia correspondent at the South China Morning Post. Bhavan and I have just been talking off mic and we were both covering this way back when. We are both relieved to be at, see it signed. I think I was saying I covered it in 2014... And you're maybe even ahead of me in writing about this RCEP deal.
4: Yeah, I mean, over the years, we have heard all these terms like, you know, uh, landing zones and significant progress every year. When the ministers meet, they would come up after the meetings with, you know, statements uh, trying to show that some kind of progress had been made. And, you know, in 2014 or 15, I remember, you know, that the the Singaporean trade minister said they had, not made progress, but I you know they they had established uh, landing zones where the countries who you know had had come to some consensus on some parts of the deal. So, you know, eight years in the making for what is rather uh, you know it's quite a simple deal. Mm. Uh, still, you know, it's been 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 uh, celebrated in some.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's this, people call it the spaghetti bowl of existing trade deals. Bring them under one umbrella and hope that maybe it leads to something more substantial in the future.
4: Yeah, so we, when we did a story uh, this week on, you know, the likelihood of it being ratified, uh, some of the experts I spoke to said, you know, it's we should see it as a starting point for, you know, a, a more substantial deal, something that meets uh, the standards of the CPTPP uh, within ASEAN and in and its, and its uh, trading partners. Uh, whether that happens uh, quickly is you know, is something to watch out for.
1: Yeah, I loved your story um, at the, in the early part of this week when you talked about the challenges of this getting ratified because, I mean, when you look at what's going on in the world, <laughs> particularly in this part of the world, and you look at the countries who are in this agreement... A lot of them, a right. the good substantial portion of the countries involved in RCEP have got major political issues with China. Right. There's obviously the long-standing issues of Japan, Korea, the more recent and very touchy issues with Australia, the likes of Malaysia and stuff. You know, there's 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 history there too. Um, I mean, is it going to be as simple as just getting this ratified, or do you
4: see this actually not happening? So that's one aspect of it: whether uh, rough ties with China. Will affect uh, domestic ratification. Not all countries need uh, their parliaments to to endorse the deal and then uh, also uh, implement uh, implementation legislation. Uh, so not all countries. For example, Laos and, mm. and Vietnam, Brunei, Brunei yeah. uh, even Singapore, where uh, you know majority ruled by People's Action Party, the the, the government has said that they would move uh, to ratification in the next few months. So that's not going to be a problem for this set of countries Uh, and for the deal to come into effect you just need six ASEAN countries and three of Mm -hmm. the outside trading partners that's probably likely in 2020 where you know you have nine nine countries uh, ratifying the deal I see that happening but uh, apart from uh the china aspect you know you, you you don't know how it will play out in australia where it has to go through uh, a standing committee that looks at, uh, mm-hmm. at trade deals and then it has to be endorsed by both houses of parliament uh so that might be an issue the, the china aspect another issue is political situations in some countries for example as i mentioned in my story malaysia mm-hmm. this is a, they they have a government that's surviving from week to week mm-hmm. right uh, you don't know whether uh, who's going to be in power next week? Like literally, you don't know who's going to be in power next week because they they are currently in the throes of parliament, and any bill that's defeated means the government is out. And the new guy that comes in, what does he think about RCEP? We don't know. And they will they will need to to put in the implementation legislation mm-hmm. to to ratify the deal. So this so you might have uh, the deal coming into effect with nine countries. But not necessarily, you will have all 15 countries in play when it first comes into effect. Mm, yeah.
1: yeah. Can I ask you, Bhavan, about the deal has been built in the international press, is very much about China. Right. It's an ASEAN founded and oriented deal I mean they were in the driving seat for this do you feel like uh, is there any sort of backlash against this being held up as China's deal in, in the rest of the member countries or is that just
4: understandable given this the sort of elephant in the room so to speak I, I mean if you look at the, the kind of comments that out there people and and also uh, in the ASEAN circles there's a sense of resignation that you know because China is in there mm. that's that's always going to be the perception but the reality is that when they mooted it in 2011 and then started negotiation in 2012 right it was on asean's terms right it was this entire endeavor was about uh amalgamating all the deals that they have with the with their biggest trading partners mm. right and uh, it serves what they they, they like to see what ASEAN like to see is, is ASEAN centrality right so yeah. ASEAN is very much at the center of this deal uh so while they uh, uh are resigned to the fact that the that, that, that uh, most part of the world look at it as a china back deal uh i think they are also quite satisfied and with with, with, the, with the outcome they right they got what yeah. they wanted yeah. Yeah. at this yeah.
1: at the yeah. outset of this yeah, yeah. um what's the uh, you know again in the american press this has been billed as um you know a real wake-up call. This is the term that's being used, and John said this on the early part of the podcast, um, you know, of the US's absence in, in Asia. Right. Is that something that people are
4: talking about on, on your beat? Right, but also uh, an acceptance about the political realities in the US. Uh, for Firstly, procedurally, if Joe Biden wants to come in and do the CP- mm-hmm. CPTPP, he will have to get his his TPA powers renewed yeah. to negotiate and then uh, to get the deal through uh, uh, the Congress as it is constituted right now where, with the with upper house that's, you know, republic that's, that's against him. And generally, uh, a mood where, you know, I would say a, a bipartisan mood that's uh, very well aware of public sentiment against multilateralism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, this is not uh, this is me just uh, projecting what I hear from yeah, Asian sure, Asian sure, voices, course. right? Yep. So they, that, this is their perception of of what is happening in America right now, and I think it might be quite right. It's real. It sounds yeah. realistic to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so while they do want to see uh, the Americans come into the CPTPP as a kind of counterbalance to Chinese participation in the RCEP, uh, they are also realistic that it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And and if you to 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 really hear this being fleshed out, you just have to listen to what the Singapore Prime Minister Lee Hsien lung has been saying. Uh, I think quite uh, repeatedly over the last two weeks about uh, on this matter, because I think he's been asked several times, you know, whether you want uh, the US to be in the CPTPP. And Singapore was, you know, is one of the founding members of mm-hmm. the TPP, and uh, really they they were left disappointed when when Trump pulled out in
1: 2017. Yeah, and I saw that there was also a bit of. Um bit of a reality, a realistic look at Biden coming in, Um, perhaps an acknowledgement that maybe the Obama administration wasn't as Asia-oriented as it might have been in its dying throes. Maybe not, but in the last couple of years, there was the pivot to to Asia. But do you think that there is sort of a measured reaction to Biden's election in in, in parts of Asia as well?
4: Yeah, I think in retrospect, people now view the Obama administration as too idealistic with its pivot, whether it's trade or, or on the strategic realm, right? Uh, so now people are going to be more aware when uh, the US promises uh, its presence mm-hmm. in terms of you know, enhancing its economic uh, uh, influence in the US, in, in Asia or, or in, in other areas. So uh, there's going to be more uh, uh, caution, I think. Yeah. yeah, fantastic.
1: Well, we'll be looking out for your stories on the topic. Bavan, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's US China Trade War Update. I've been Finn Bar Birmingham on the SCMP's political economy desk. You can follow me at F Birmingham, that's Birmingham with a B-E-R. You can follow Bavan, who joined us in the second half of the show at J Bavan, that's B-H-A-V-A-N. And don't forget the 24-hour coverage at scmp.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your masks. All the best.
0: For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.